All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, reassembling. Uh, I've been told that um, everybody needs to uh, make sure their cell phones are off. Uh, I guess a couple got turned on in the interim. Uh, I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies here at Cato. I'm also a Ph.D. student working on my dissertation up at MIT in the political science department. Uh, this panel is called Assessing Terrorist Capability to Use Weapons of Mass Destruction. Just two quick points on that. Uh, number one, I want to apologize a little for the title. Um, the term weapons of mass destruction, I think, should be abolished because it uh, includes weapons technologies that are radically different in lethality, and therefore the term confuses policy discussion. So I'm sorry uh, that we put in the title. What we're really going to be talking about are nuclear and biological weapons uh, and terrorist use of them. Second, let me just say why we're doing this. Um, since the 1990s, at least maybe longer, I think we have in this country tended towards uh, worst-case assumptions about terrorists' uh, ability to use these weapons to kill us. I think we have in both academia, think tanks, and most importantly in government, substituted analysis of what is possible for analysis of what is probable, largely avoiding actual net assessment of what terrorists can do and how likely that is. Uh, for example, the recent WMD commission, chaired by former Senators Bob Graham and Jim Tenet, generated a ton of headlines by saying it's 50 percent likely that there will be a terrorist WMD attack somewhere in the world in the next five years. And I would say that the report, if you read it, uh, actually offers no analysis to justify that claim, which seems to have been made largely uh, to change policy by generating alarm and headlines. So you may agree with the ends, uh, but you should not, uh, in my opinion, agree with the analysis and the method of getting there. Uh, so the purpose of this panel is to do our modest bit to correct this mode of operation. I think uh, whether or not you say we're underestimating or overestimating the threat, we ought to have more careful assessments of it. Uh, so we're going to have two 10- or 15-minute presentations assessing terrorists' ability to use nuclear and biological weapons, and then two slightly briefer presentations that are sort of in response. Um, if possible, if there's time, we'll have a little back and forth among the panelists, but I can't guarantee that. Uh, I definitely want to leave a half hour for questions from the audience because I know there's a lot of experts here in the audience. With that, let me quickly introduce the panelists and we'll get started. I'm not going to list their, uh, all their accomplishments. Uh, that's in the handout and uh, online. Our first speaker, John Mueller, is a professor of political science at Ohio State where he's the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at the Mershon Center. His latest book is Overblown, How Politicians and the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them. That's on sale outside. And he'll be presenting work uh, related to his next book, which will be titled Atomic Obsession, correct? That's it. Uh, our second speaker, Milton Leidenberg, is a senior research scholar at the Center for International and Security Studies at the U of Maryland. Uh, he's been publishing in the field of arms control and nonproliferation for over 40 years, which is 10 years longer than I've been alive. Uh, he wrote a monograph three years ago called Assessing the Biological Weapons and Bioterrorism Threat, and he'll be presenting on that subject. Our third speaker, Jim Walsh, is a research associate at the world-renowned MIT Security Studies Program. Uh, his research focuses on nuclear proliferation, especially with regard to Iran and North Korea, and he travels frequently to those countries. And he was previously director of managing the, managing the Atom program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Our fourth speaker, Randy Larson, is a national, the national security advisor to the Center for Biosecurity of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He's also the founder of the Institute for Homeland Security, the one-time chairman of the Department of Military Strategy and Operations at the National War College, and he's a retired U.S. Air Force colonel. Uh, he's also the author of Our Own Worst Enemy, Asking the Right Questions About Security to Protect You, Your Family, and America, a book that I recommend. And uh, with that, I will turn uh, the podium over to John. 
Okay, thank you. In this uh, city of disclaimers, I should say that nothing I say should be taken to indicate the views of Woody Hayes um, <laughs> or, or of any of his larger football players. Um, the, um, it's always nice to get back to the, you know, get my hysteria kick by coming back to Washington, not to Cato. Cato sort of an island. There's sort of three places in the country that are capable of sustaining hysteria. Uh, one is uh, Washington, the other is Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the third, of course, is the Weather Channel. Um, so let me um, – uh, 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 my, my book from 19, uh, 2006 was called Overblown, um, and in it I make two sort of basic points. One is that the, the uh, threat of uh, terrorism has been massively exaggerated, um, and uh, your chances of being killed at present rates uh, by international terrorists over an 80-year period or something like one in 80,000. Uh, that assumes that there's a t- another 9-11 every several years. If there isn't, that your chance of being killed is more like one in 130,000, somewhere along the line of what it would be like to be killed by an asteroid. Uh, the second major point it was that um, the, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of overreaction to it, uh, and indeed the overreaction has been far costlier even than the damage in the world's most terrible terrorist event, that of 9-11-2001. The uh, war in Iraq, the $3 trillion war in Iraq, is just one part of that, which has ended up killing maybe 100,000 people uh, and considerably more Americans than died on 9-11. Um, the, um, uh, 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 I've been recently um, attacked by, um, in print by, uh, just I found this out a few hours ago, uh, by Michael Chertoff in an article. Um, and he argues in that article um, that it's okay to, uh, you're correct, of course, the chance of being killed is 1 in 80,000, but that assumes the, the current rate continues. What if they get nuclear weapons? We have, to, uh, we have to really worry about that very deeply, um, and that would change the calculation enormously. And, of course, he's completely right about that. I do discuss that in the book and do talk about nuclear weapons, and, 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 uh, but uh, not adequately enough probably for him. Or maybe he didn't get to that chapter. I'm not sure. Um, the, um, uh, uh, and and uh, my own experience with, that, with talking about the book has been along that line. Um, when I first started talking, uh, doing lectures and discussions and uh, uh, seminars and so forth on the basic idea, going back to 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, I was rather surprised. I actually expected to be lynched um, by having such an unconventional view, but uh, as you can see, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and um, I, uh, the audiences were tended to be quite receptive and open. That didn't mean that everybody agreed. Um, but a lot of people did agree, in fact, a fair number of people saying, that's what I've been saying. How come no one else has been saying this uh, during this period of time? Uh, however, a common argument was, I agree with everything you say, but what if they get nuclear weapons? So, uh, again, I try to discuss that in the book, uh, but I, what I, uh, I think that's a very good question, both from Chertoff and from them. Um, and so what I've done now is this new book called Atomic Obsession, uh, which will be out at the end of this year, uh, in which I hope to uh, try to uh, deal with that. Uh, overblown deals not only with the threat of terrorism, but all other, a lot of other national security threats, and argues that we've been very commonly exaggerating the threat of uh, the, the national security threats, whether it's you know Castro or Sukarno, or for that matter, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. 
Um, and the atomic obsession, obsession book is also somewhat broader, arguing that nuclear weapons have not really been that very important overall, uh, that uh, they have not changed history very much uh, after World War II, that they were not responsible for the fact that there was no World War III, neither the United States nor the Soviet Union had remotely the likeliest idea of getting into any kind of war with each other, with or without nuclear weapons. Uh, that proliferation has been very slow for the simple reason that nuclear weapons are really stupid. Uh, and wa wasting money, time, effort, and, and scientific expertise to build them has mostly been uh, a waste. Uh, and they haven't seen it done anybody any good. It didn't help China when it battled North Vietnam. It didn't help the British in the Falklands or in Suez. Uh, it didn't help the United States, obviously, in Korea, Vietnam, or Iraq, etc., the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. Um, and uh, so the argument with proliferation is that mostly it's likely to be quite slow, if at all, uh, and not very consequential. Uh, if Iran gets the bomb, what it's most likely to use it for is deterrence and uh, to stoke its own prestige, uh, which are not, you know, that big a deal in many respects. So it's trying to downplay that. It also argues that a lot of the obsessive issue about proliferation has resulted in more deaths than were killed, died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined, uh, the sanctions on Iraq and now this war on Iraq, and of course the potential wars on North Korea uh, or Iran. Um, okay, the book also then, the, the main, main point here obviously, is on the atomic terrorism issue. Um, and the argument there is it's just the chances of a, atomic, of a terrorist group getting nuclear weapons uh, is almost vanishingly small. And I tried to, to make this point. I won't be able to deal with it very in much detail now, obviously. Uh, but what I did was just try to supply a narrative of what you'd have to do following the most likely scenario. A set of experts asked by Senator Luger, what's the most likely way a, t a terrorist could get the bomb? Basically said what they do is they buy or steal uh, highly enriched uranium. Then they'd set up a machine shop to make it into a bomb. Then they'd get it to the target, which invariably is... Times Square, New York. If you don't like that, you can think DuPont Circle. Um, get a little bit more local color in here. Um, and then set it off. Um, and it would not be a bomb, it would be a device. Uh, you press tab A into tab B and then you run like hell and it goes off. Um, the, so, so basically, uh, that, uh, that's the scenario I mostly deal with, though there are other possibilities of getting the bomb. Uh, and what happens if you look at that, the more you look at it, in William Languish's book called Atomic Bazaar uh, is very helpful in this regard because he really looks at, okay, you're a terrorist and you want to do this. How do you get the fissile material? And what you do is you have this complicated situation in which you have to find fissile material, uranium, highly enriched uranium, and you have to somehow smuggle it out, which means you have to trust you know, the famous disgruntled Soviet scientists, ex-Soviet scientists, and you have to bribe them. They have to stay bribed. And, they, and it can't become a sting. Uh, it also can't become a scam, or it can be, or the scientists maybe who's working for you for your for your millions of dollars uh, may do everything uh, perfectly um, honestly, but it turns out the stuff he delivers to you isn't any good because he's incompetent. Uh, you've also got police systems that would follow you once you got the once the purloined material is purloined. They're going to be chasing after you. They are also going to put on high. Uh, high reward, extremely high reward on getting the weapon back or getting the fissile material back. Uh, you're going to have to use criminals yet again to get out of the country, presumably, some sort of smuggling route. Um, and so and each of the criminals, if they know what you're up to, are very good at extortion. And, uh, and so in many respects, what you're probably going to have to do is kill them after they've done what they've done, which means that they may think of that as well, and they may not decide to cooperate from the beginning. 
you know, the, the disgruntled Soviet scientist sits there and says, well, you know, I give them that, then they get the money, and then the fissile material is gone, and only a few people know where the fissile material is, and I'm one of them, and if I start riding around in the Lombardini, they're going to realize that uh, something strange has happened. Uh, and furthermore, these guys aren't going to trust me because I know so much about it, and so they're going to kill me. So anyway, there's all kinds of little exquisite things that you have to go through. Uh, once you get to the machine shop, you have to get a set of scientists and engineers who are essentially suicidal. They were willing to give up their lives for the project um, because they're not going to be able to go back to Pakistan U uh, after doing it. They're not, after the bomb is made or either discovered or blown up, uh, their names are going to be mud and there's going to be this national, international uh, effort to try to find them. Um, the setting up the machine shop is difficult, a lot of expensive equipment, finding these guys, making sure they're completely loyal and essentially willing to give up their lives and careers, uh, that their wives back home don't notice that they're missing, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, is, it just adds to the complexity. The building of the bomb is very difficult. You have to get the precise blueprints and so forth. Uh, then you have to get it across an international border, get it to Times Square or DuPont Circle. Uh, you have to find somebody in the country that is cap still very technologically capable of transporting it to the goal and then setting it off. Um, okay, well, I can go into a lot more detail if you want, but uh, that's the basic outline. Uh, what I'd like to, um, what I did after doing the narrative is I, I sort of bullet, made a sort of set of bulleted uh, uh, barriers you'd have to do. Uh, find fissile material, get it, uh, you know, bribe these guys, bribe these guys, and so forth. And when I came out at the end was about 20 barriers that you'd have to do. And I thought that was too many, so I really bashed them, so I got it down to 20. Um, then the question is, each of these barriers you have to cover. Now, when people talk about this, they say it would be difficult but not impossible, and I agree. Um, so each of the barriers. But there's a whole bunch of difficult but not impossible barriers you have to cover. So uh, the question is, how much is difficult or not impossible? So I decided I'd lean very heavily in favor of the terrorists and say difficult but not impossible means one chance in three of being successful. Probably much better would be one chance in ten and one chance in a hundred, but let's say to one chance in three. Um, if that's the case, and assuming these things are all independent and there's statistical problems and so forth, but um, what would happen uh, if you tried to do that? What's your chances of being successful with getting through all 20 of these barriers, all of which you have to do and all of which you have to do pretty much in sequence? Uh, and the answer is about one chance in three and a half billion. Uh, being very generous with numbers, I'm willing to say I'm off by a factor of a thousand. So therefore, if you're a terrorist and you ask me, my suggestion is, well, you know, only one in three and a half million one chance in three and a half a million, go for it. Um, uh, that's, that's basically what the gamble would be, it seems to me. Uh, in addition, it's a total gamble because they're mostly, this is a very expensive and difficult thing to do. So unlike buying a ticket for the lottery, which is, you know, $5 or 2 50 or whatever it is, you're basically putting everything, including your life, at stake for a gamble that's maybe one in three and a half million or three and a half billion or whatever it is. Uh, so my conclusion is it's not exceedingly likely um, and uh, that this idea ought to be basically come out. Uh, there's other possibilities of getting the bomb, less likely, but possible. One is that a country would give you the bomb, um, and a lot of people are worried about that. Uh, but uh, there's an awful lot of people, including people who are very hysterical about nuclear uh, terrorism, think that's exceedingly unlikely uh, because uh, the states just simply won't give it to somebody they can't control. They're very, very precious bombs. Uh, the possibility also is to steal a bomb, the famous loose nuke story. Uh, you go out, you buy one on the black market. There was a r rumor in 1998 that Al-Qaeda had bought 20 
uh, nuclear weapons for three, $30 million plus two tons of opium uh, on the open market in the, in the Soviet Union. Uh, you, you try doing that, but basically there doesn't seem to be anything resembling loose nukes around. Uh, insofar as there are nukes within countries, they tend to be very heavily protected. In the case of Pakistan, for example, a very simple way of protecting them is keep them in two pieces and have them in two different places. So you have to steal both parts of the bomb and then put it together. Uh, and so that's an area, you know, obviously not impossible, uh, but it, but it uh, very, very improbable. So uh, basically the idea that, that terrorists can come up with a bomb strikes me as very small. Um, and what's important also about it is, as, as Chertoff's article suggests, that it's the fear of this extremely improbable event which causes people to support um, the uh, the whole homeland security thing. I mean, because that's his that's his that's his ace of spades. Uh, basically, if you don't do this, it might blow up Manhattan. Um, and uh, and uh, so, consequences used for for much 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 uh, much wider uh, thing. Okay, uh, the, the the question about probabilities is that the. Um, uh, People argue quite sensibly that it's not simply a matter of probability, it's also a matter of consequence. Uh, an atomic bomb going off in DuPont Circle would be a horrific disaster. Uh, so therefore, the, the, even if the probability is very low, then uh, you still have to worry about it, and that's quite true. Uh, the question is, how low does a probability have to get before you stop worrying about it? Let me give you a scenario. The British, at any time they wanted, uh, could kill 20 million Americans with their nuclear weapons. Now, that's much, much, much worse than any, any uh, terrorist could even uh, think of accomplishing. Uh, and basically what they've uh, – and, and we don't worry about it. So it must be the probability is so low we're not worried about that terrific calamity. Maybe it's one in three and a half million. I don't know. Or if you don't like – if you like the British too much, how about the Russians? You know, we don't get along all that well with them. They could easily kill 40, 50 million Americans if they really worked at it. Uh, and we don't worry about that either. It must be that the probability, even of that horrific catastrophe, has gotten so low that uh, it's passed out of our, um, out of our uh, uh, um, uh, consideration. Okay, uh, just two final points, uh, since Ben is starting to get anxious over here in the corner. Uh, right. Uh, one is the question is, does the al-Qaeda even desire to get it? Al-Qaeda is important because al-Qaeda is the only terrorist group that, at least in principle, seems to want to attack the United States. Um, and the evidence on this is pretty limited. Uh, I don't, I can, I'd be delighted to go into it in some detail. Uh, but, you know, they have asked some questions of some Pakistani uh, scientists who actually didn't know how to build a bomb. But anyway, they asked them about how to build a bomb. Uh, they did merely – they had some textbook stuff that they talked about how to build a bomb a little bit when they're in Afghanistan. But basically, they haven't done much of anything overall. Um, the, uh, there, in fact, there's some evidence that Osama bin Laden there, – there's sort of hot – someone talked earlier about sort of the differences in, among al-Qaeda and all the curse words they're throwing back and forth at, at, at each other. There are some hotheads within al-Qaeda that really want to go toward weapons of mass destruction. Osama bin Laden then basically said, you know, okay, uh, let's think about it, but he never funded it. In other words, he wasn't terribly interested in it overall. Uh, and then finally, the last point is the capacity of this group. We've already – this basically dovetails on some of the discussion in the previous panel. Uh, the question is, how big is the group? Well, it's probably, as Mark Sageman suggests, about 150 people running around in the uh, grand cent of, of, of al-Qaeda central, running around in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, and then there's the leaderless jihadis who are sort of connecting on the Internet. And the idea that these guys could make a nuclear weapon, come on, uh, they, they can't even figure out each other's uh, chat room codes half the time. Uh, so consequently, uh, it, it's just not – it's a very small group and I think very much in decline, as almost everybody said in the previous panel. Um, and also, the, um, 
the question is, how much damage have they done since 9-11? Well, three think tanks have tallied everything that al-Qaeda has done since 9-11. Al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda lookalikes, al-Qaeda maybes, al-Qaeda wannabes since 9-11, both domestic and internationally, outside of war zones, outside of Iraq, in other words, in particular. Uh, and the total number of people killed in these attacks is two or 300 per year throughout the whole world. That includes London, Bali, all that kind of stuff. Horrible things, uh, and two or three hundred too many, but that's not exactly what you call it an existential threat uh, to much of anybody. Uh, in addition, there's, of course, none in the United States, apparently. The United States has, uh, has admitted two billion foreigners legally to this country since 9-11. About 300 million foreigners enter this country legally every year. Amazing number. Um, this includes, you know, truckers going back and forth across the Canadian border and things. Um, and um, if, even, if our, uh, even if our techniques for surveillance and so forth are really terrific, I don't think even Chertoff would agree that it's, it's 90% effective. But say it is 90% effective, only 10% got in. If 10% got in, then some of these guys would be picked up by, uh, by, uh, by uh, the FBI uh, along the line, and they found none. There are none here. Uh, this suggests, I think, not that the protective measures are so great, but al-Qaeda um, is an uh, organization which is very much in decline. In many respects, it hasn't really done anything except to issue videos since 9-11. I mean, a real operation, as far as I know, that they sort of planned like 9-11 and put together. They haven't done anything in some respects. Um, and um, the, uh, and they also seem not even be trying to get into the United States. Okay, thank you. Hi, my name is Milton Leitenberg. Um, I'm a scientist by training, and I think that has a lot to do with the way I go about looking at this problem. Um, my responsibility is to talk about biological weapons, um, and since I'll also be, in a way, talking about massive exaggeration, uh, I think it's important that you understand I've been working on both chemical and biological weapons arms control problems actually since 1963. So I'm scarcely the kind of person that, that denigrates these things, that doesn't think they're dangerous, and doesn't think they can do enormous damage. The question is, what can terrorists, really international terrorist groups, do with them? Um, I did hand out material. And the first two pages I gave you, the two sources, two books I published, and I, uh, one of them is totally available on the web, the Army War College one, so you're welcome to look at it. Um, and, of course, the, uh, three, four hundred pages can tell you lots more than I can in, in 15 minutes. Um, since 9-11, uh, we have appropriated 57 but not since 9-11, sorry, since fiscal year uh, 201. In other words, after the Amerithrax, after the 9-11 and the combination of the October-November anthrax events in the United States, we've appropriated $57 billion for biodefense. The present annual expenditure rate is $9 billion a year, uh, and it is likely to stay at that. I don't know that it will be cut even 5 or 10% over a few years, uh, but it's not likely to go away very much. That's a substantial amount of money, and it's going to continue. Um, I will read you a few statements uh, of the way this has been talked about. I, I 
picked out a few. They're perfectly typical. Uh, Chertoff, in fact, always says it's it's bio that's going to keep him up at night and does keep him up at night. In fact, he, he's been saying that for years, much more than the nuclear. Um, Senator William Frist in 205, the greatest existential threat we have in the world today is biological. An inevitable bioterror attack would come at some time in the next 10 years. Dr. O'Toole from the Pittsburgh Hopkins Group, this bioterrorism is one of the most pressing problems we have in the planet today. Barry Kellman, who published a book on this last year, no other problem facing humanity is so potentially cataclysmic and has been so inadequately addressed. I'll leave out the next one, which was the deputy secretary to Chertoff, just in testimony last year, but again said it, that's what keeps him up all night. I then also gave you several charts, which I think it's important, uh, terribly important, for you to keep in mind as what the real world is out there that we're talking about when we say this is the most important thing. And I put the, I stacked them in order. The first one is annual, annual global mortality rates, uh, several of them disease, several of them non-disease. The biggest one is, is poverty. That's 7.3 million a year. Uh, HIV, TB, and malaria, the three together, 5 million a year. Diarrheal diseases, which includes cholera, 3.5 million a year. Smoking, 5 million a year. Measles, half to 1 million a year. Warfare, about a million. Bioterrorism, zero. That's 23 million a year, year after year after year after year. If you look at annual U.S. major disease mortality, cancer, about 600,000 per year. Tobacco, 440,000. Obesity, another 400,000. Approximately 1.7 million Americans develop infections in hospitals, and around 99, in other words, 100,000 of them die per year. All these things are per year. If you add the four together, you get 1.5 million per year, year after year after year. In the 20th century, bioterrorism killed five people in the United States. Um, in the 21st century, so, forth, so far, no one. The last one was a mortality disease table, disease only for New York City, but I won't rattle off the numbers. It's around 60,000 per year. Also think of another entire category, uh, groups of categories, global climate change, the presumptive changes that's going to come to that for global agricultural production, uh, what will happen to Asia's major river systems, uh, whether that and in what way it will interact between interstate conflict, global deforestation, desertification, global poverty levels, oceanic changes, coral reefs, depletion of freshwater aquifers, and finally, they're not Andy's numbers, they're my own, because Andy Mack uses uh, the political science cows data criteria of counting deaths in wars and conflicts that are battle caused. I count everybody. In other words, everybody in Sudan, everybody in the Congo, those are not battle deaths. And my figures came up to 245 million people in the 20th century. That's a pile of dead bodies. Now, finally, to get to the subject, 
how would you estimate the current biological weapons threat to the United States? There are four components. What's the state of offensive biological weapons programs being carried out by states? Second, evidence of proliferation from those programs to either other states or non-state actors. Third, evidence of state assistance to non-state actors to develop or produce biological agents or weapons. And last, efforts to develop biological weapons or agents by non-state actors themselves that are true international terrorist groups. And I'll say something about each of these. For 30 years, I'm not running through the, the figures. We have a national compliance report, both classified and unclassified, going back to the late 1970s, where the United States government publicly, in the unclassified version, supplied to congressional committees each year the number of states we said had biological weapon programs, offensive ones. You can have defensive ones. That's fine. And chemical weapons programs. Um, now, 30 years later, we know those numbers were incorrect. I'm not giving you the rundown on the numbers or the identified countries. They're all in my published material, and they're all publicly available. Uh, of course, I had to get them from government sources. Um, the important thing is that you also were told over the intervening 30 years that that trend line was increasing constantly, that more and more countries, countries, state programs, that there were more and more of these for offensive biological weapons programs. We know now that that's not correct. It was an absolutely flat line. There were about five or six. We officially said it went up to 13 incrementally from 8 to 10 to 12 to 13. Uh, we're now back to six. And it appears that in the past four or five years, our intelligence agencies have dropped out five of those 12. We don't think they ever had offensive biological weapons programs, which means that for 30 years it's been a flat state law, flat straight line. It didn't go down, but it didn't go up either. So we're not in far state programs. We're not any worse off than we've been for 30 years. Now, the final aspect of this is even for those six countries, we produce a statement, again, an unclassified statement every year. It's a threat statement by the DIA and CIA uh, to four Senate committees. The remaining countries, the phrases used for the remaining country programs are so caveated. Each country gets one or two lines, and there's usually three caveats in each one of them. If you applied the same wording, I'm not reading them for you, to the United States or Canada or Great Britain or Sweden or Norway or Belgium and Holland and France, all of whom have defensive biological weapons programs and all of which certainly have the capability, capability word is always in there, you would be saying the very same things that we say about the Iranians or the North Koreans as would be applicable and most of all for our own country. So that it, the remaining six statements carry very, very little weight anymore to anybody that's technically proficient in this subject.
All right, proliferation from state programs. After 1992, of course, the big consideration was former Soviet biological weapon scientists. They had an enormous, enormous program, which we knew very little about. I've spent 10 years now working on a book on the former Soviet BW program. And then a substantial proportion of these people simply went out of work. The question was, where were they going to go? Well, 98% of them have come to the United States and Western Europe, some to Brazil, but only a very, very small number. We know of 12 that went to Iran. We don't know of any that went to any other countries. Of the 12 that went to Iran, half of them worked in Academy of Sciences institutes and not in, in uh, BW institutes, in quotes. That doesn't mean they couldn't teach what uh, is necessary for Iranians to learn BW. Ah, but the French Pasteur Institute trains people in Iran, too. And the Iranians send people to the Pasteur Institute in Paris to learn, too. And the Iraqis send people to do their learning to Germany and England. So the question of what those Russians are teaching, we don't know. But it's probably not any different than the Iraqis are getting, or the Iranians, excuse me, in Paris, France. South Africa, who had a BW program and put it away under U.S. and British pressure in 95, we know of no, it was very small. There were only six or seven people on the BW side. We know of no one that's gone anywhere or given any information to anyone. The Iraqi program, the same. We know of no one that's gone anywhere or given any information to anyone else. I could tell an awful story. I don't have time. When our program, when our offensive program closed down, the famous Bill Patrick, he's put it publicly, and two or three of his colleagues, when the Shah was still in Iran, wrote a letter offering their services to Iran. These were, these were the best people in our offensive BW program. Well, the U.S. government found out about the letter, and they was withdrawn. But uh, don't think that it's just uh, starving uh, former Soviet BW scientists that think along, along these lines. Technology transfer. Ah, the Iraqi program got lots from us, from the French, from the Germans, uh, from the Swiss, from the Italians, <coughs> from virtually everybody. That's prior to 1988. After 1988, nothing. Nothing from any of the former Soviet BW labs. Uh, state assistance to non-state actors. As far as we know, there never has been any for BW. And our intelligence community for 25 years has believed that there never would be any either. Well, I've got only three minutes and I've scarcely run through half. Um, the two most important terrorist groups that did try and do something in this, that's the Japanese Aum group, Aum Shinrikyo, between 90 and 93, failed. They did not get any real pathogen. They got a vaccine strain of anthrax, which can't do anything to anybody. And they didn't know what to do with that. They never got any botulinum toxin. The Al-Qaeda group in Afghanistan, despite what's in George Tenet's memoirs, I'm almost certain, also never got any pathogen, got two very simple pieces of equipment, an incubator and a centrifuge, and never did any laboratory work. I'm the person that got the documents declassified. Uh, 
Okay, I'll have to skip over a lot of things. I want to read you two more statements. The commission report, which did come out two, three weeks ago, which was just uh, mentioned, probably one of the more important statements, certainly to me, was, I quote, we accept the validity of intelligence estimates about the current rudimentary nature of terrorist capabilities in the area of biological weapons. I'll read you a personal message that I got in 205. I got three such messages, and I got a pile of them before 2000 as well, several of them. For your information, I'm quoting, for your information, the intelligence community shares your perspective of terrorist capabilities which have been fed to senior administration officials. So I'm simply not uh, making these statements out of my own conceptions. A word about the Amerithrax attacks. That's terribly important. That tells you what a real competent person can do with a real pathogenic strain, with 30, well, not 30, 23-odd, 24-odd years of technical training, more than half of it with that agent, one of a handful of people in the United States who knew how to make that dry powder with that kind of characteristic. The question is, what does this have to do with what you can expect a terrorist group to do and how soon they could do that? And the answer is next to nothing, you see, because what we found so far, what we found so far is that those people have been totally abysmally ignorant of, of how to read the the technical professional literature, what's on the jihadi websites, comes from American poisoners' handbooks sold here at gun shows, which can't make anything. And what it would make is just garbage. Now, we were asked, so finally, since I have to jump over this, we were asked to say something about what are the policy implications of what we had to say, and the handout material was very weak about that. There are two. Um, I should read you one other thing. Well, I can remember it. Um, in 1998, there was the famous television presentation by Secretary of Defense Cohen here in Washington with the five-pound bag of sugar. That picture was found in Dr. Zawahiri's files. And there's a, a message which we have verbatim uh, from his computer which says, we only became aware of them, biological weapons, when the enemy drew our attention to them by repeatedly expressing concerns that they can be produced simply with easily available materials. In other words, the two things that are always said that are driving this in the world, the fact that knowledge is increasing in this field fantastically, and give me one more and that um, the technical equipment is also increasing, which is no question, dispersed all over the world. These have not been the drivers at all. The driver only came when people hear very stupidly picked phrases that told these people, this is what you should be doing. This is extremely powerful stuff. It's very, very dangerous. We're scared to death of it. And then they thought, bethought themselves, and we might, we should look into this. Now, that's not quite true. That's not quite true for the Aum Shinrikyo, but it certainly was true
for al-Qaeda. The policy implication is very simple. Mistaken threat assessments make mistaken policy and make mistaken allocation of financial resources. The $57 billion should probably have been appropriated very largely for things like vaccine plans for pandemic flu. Some portion of it, certainly, for, for BW Defense. I'm not prepared to go through the budget. We've published a 60-page compendium breakdown for all the fiscal years since 61 of what that budget. Certainly some of it is useful, but the greater part, certainly not. But the most important thing is none of that is recallable anymore. Once you've been saying that for 10, 15 years, it's hard to, to make it go away. And the second policy implication, I can't be here tomorrow. The last panel is to talk about how you talk about this. It's very often said that uh, the greatest problem will be, if there is an anthrax attack, will be public panic, which is a contradiction to the predictions of how many millions it's going to kill. There will be public panic again if you tell people for 15 years that there will be public panic. That, that's not terribly funny. I, I was involved in civil defense studies 45 years ago for the Academy of Sciences, and that's long understood. The, the model is World War II in London in the Blicks. If you tell people we will do the very best we can to deal with this situation, and we are doing everything we can to deal with this situation, and you will survive, and there is no need to panic, there won't be panic. If all you hear from public policy people in DHS, that there will be panic, there certainly will be panic. I'm sorry I ran out. Well, it's my pleasure to be able uh, to respond to John's uh, presentation. John is a creative, contrarian, and often correct analyst of national security affairs. And if he didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. We need someone to challenge the assumptions of the sloganeering and the echo effects that often pass off as policy analysis. And it's not for nothing that he's the Woody Hayes chair of national security. <laughs> because he knows how to throw a punch and how to mix it up. And I, and I think that's a good thing. And in this particular case, I think he and a number of colleagues, including Jane Kramer at the University of Oregon, have done very important work on America's historical tendency towards security panics and threat hyping. Uh, perhaps to John's surprise, I agree with much of his critique. Now, he's going to find that surprising because I work in Cambridge, and as you may have heard, Cambridge ranks second to the Weather Channel in terms of being a center for threat hyping. Uh, I worked at the Belfer Center for Science and, American, uh, and International Affairs, which is the devil's lair for atomic alarmism. And when you read John's uh, January 08 conference paper about atomic uh, terrorism, 
Uh, he lists people that he calls alarmists. And I'm reading this paper, and I say, I know that guy, and I, I work with that guy, and, and basically identified everyone in my Rolodex except for my two children. And believe me, they are the alarmists. Those are the two alarmists he didn't get, quite get to. So I agree that there's a lot of this. Those who warn that there's a 50% chance of, terrorism, of a terrorist nuclear attack in 10 years, that's a claim that strikes me as deeply unscientific, and it seems that people who make those claims are a little too eager to try to make their case. I would even add to John's critique, which focuses primarily on technical feasibility issues, and say that we have to pay attention to organizational structure of terrorist groups. And for example, that a terrorist organizational structure that relies on a distributed network is not the kind of organizational structure that lends itself to complex scientific enterprise, where you need groups of people together in a stationary place who engage in group problem solving. So I, I, he doesn't have to convince me that there's a lot of uh, hyping going on here. One senses, though, uh, some of the same disease. One senses that some people, uh, a warning of nuclear terrorism, are so eager uh, that they act as advocates more of social, uh, than social scientists, and one senses that with John, he's a little too eager to make his claims. And I, I think I'm going to go through some of that. As for me, I'm a moderate. Advocates say, uh, advocates of nuclear terrorism uh, prevention say that it's a near certainty there will be a nuclear terrorist attack. Uh, the skeptics say it's a near impossibility, and I think it's somewhere in between. It's somewhere in between nearly impossible and inevitable. Uh, but I think more than that, uh, whatever the probability we assign, it's also important that we need to assign a confidence level. No one talks about assigning confidence levels to our conclusions. My view is whether you're an advocate or a skeptic or even my claims, I don't attach a lot of high confidence to the claims that we're making. We're working in a world of uncertainty, and so we, shouldn't, we should have a little humbleness. Both sides should have a little more humility about the nature of the claims that they're making. In short, I think that this is a classic low-probability, high-consequence event, and that has all the uncertainty that normally entails those sorts of challenges. I think John's critique is useful and necessary, but it focuses on a premise and as a result, misses some more important questions. So what I'm going to do in my remaining couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about what I agree with with John, and this refers to his 08 paper, which you can get off his website and is worth reading. I'm going to talk about some disagreements and then where we're actually missing the ball in this debate. And I'm going to speed through this. I'm warning you in advance. What do I agree with? I agree it's unlikely that states will give nuclear weapons to non-state actors. I see very little evidence for that. I think most terrorists are not interested in nuclear weapons. The plutonium, as opposed to highly enriched uranium, is sort of self-protecting because it's so dirty, ugly, and difficult to deal with. I think it's hard for non-state actors to use some types of nuclear weapons that might be stolen. I think it's harder to build a nuclear weapon than most people imagine, and that I don't think there's much in the so-called suitcase bomb story. I am also underwhelmed by al-Qaeda's technical capability. Uh, let me talk about some things that I disagree with, though. Uh, John says countries value their nuclear weapons so much that they are therefore going to be good about taking care of them, including the material. I don't think the historical record shows that at all. You'd think that that's a nice logical conclusion, but the empirical record points otherwise. John's not, uh, I'm not as sanguine as John about the AQCon network and gray networks. He seems to think, he seems to have faith in the CIA more than almost in the other part of the government that they can wrap up these gray networks and they're not a problem. I think they are a problem. I think, uh, uh, he thinks that we'll notice when uranium is missing. I doubt that if we don't have a baseline inventory that tells us how much uranium there is. He's, uh, I, uh, he says that non-state actors can't get detailed blueprints needed for bomb construction. That's not what the IAEA says. Uh, they say in their report on Libya that those blueprints are still floating around. 
his implicit notion is that al-Qaeda is the only possible candidate for nuclear terrorism. I don't agree with that. I worry about al-Qaeda 4.0, kids in Europe who go to good schools 20 years from now, or, or types of terrorists we don't even imagine. In the 70s, we thought it was all ideological. We did not see uh, the terrorists that we have today. What will it be 20 years from now? I think it would be a mistake to base all our eggs on a basket that uh, contains a portrait of today's terrorists. I do worry about countries that have nuclear weapons today and think we should worry about them as much as we worry about those that might get them in the future. Uh, So those are the things I disagree with. And uh, let me now turn, finally, to two questions that I think are missing on this. How much risk can we tolerate? John offers his own statistical estimate of the likelihood of a nuclear attack. I can't get into the details, but I find it unpersuasive and largely an artifact of a statistical method. If you add a lot of conditions and you multiply the probabilities, then you're going to get a low probability in your sum. And so if you have 20 conditions, you know, that's what you're going to get. Uh, You know, I think if I got up before 9-11 and said there are 20 obstacles to carrying out 9-11, and they'd have to – and what would happen if uh, these guys were on no-fly list? Certainly they'd be caught. What happens if they went and said they want to learn how to fly uh, fly a plane but not land it? Certainly they would be caught, and on and on and on. I could have made it sound highly improbable. Uh, You know, what is it? Is it one in a hundred? John Side, Steve Call, who interviewed some nuclear scientists, who said – you know, less than 5%. So is that 1 in 100, 5 in 100? If I went to the EPA or the FDA and said there's a 1 in 100 chance this chemical is going to kill you, do you think they'd allow it? I don't think so. I think that uh, the other question to be addressed is what action should we take? And it seems to me uh, the, John's argument is the probability is low, so we don't have to worry about it. It's, I think it's odd to say that we should wait till the terrorists have more capability before we do something about it. I think that's, you know, we should put it off. Better to do something now while the risk is low and we have the time to be successful. All of it. Finally, this, and this is the, my final slide. It seems the key issue here is not the premise, whether it's likely or it's unlikely. The problem is the response. We're missing the paradox here. The paradox is for all the alarmism, we haven't done that much about the problem. We've done a lot in the name of nuclear terrorism, the attack on Iraq, these other things. But we have moved ever so modestly to lock down nuclear materials. We spend, what, a billion and a half, two billion a year? We're going to spend trillion X on Iraq? We have not responded by attacking the problem. One of the conclusions that says nuclear weapons uh, terrorism is a threat is to conclude that we should think seriously about getting rid of nuclear weapons. That's what Kissinger and Perry and Schultz said. But we didn't come to that conclusion, and we didn't come to a conclusion that led us to act aggressively as if securing nuclear material was a top priority uh, given the threat to the U.S. homeland. No, we did other stuff. So it's not the diagnosis here that's the problem. It's the conclusions people draw from the diagnosis and the use of policy make, by policymakers and politicians to use the warning for their own instrumental uh, purposes. Let me stop there. Thank you. Great job, Jim. Um, this is great, Ben. We're on track to have 30 minutes for Q&A, which I think is the most important part here. Um, let me start with a quote. The number one threat to American national security during this long war is neither anthrax nor truck bombs. It is uncontrolled spending. I said that at the National Defense University Symposium on the Quadrennial Defense Review on November 8, 2001. I was hoping that I would be wrong in my prediction. 
That was six and a half years before I heard the term bailout, so I'm really worried more now. I ended that presentation with this sentence. The outcome of this war will determine the type of nation our grandchildren will know. I do not want that to be a nation that is bankrupt. We've been asking a lot of wrong questions about homeland security, about the nuclear threat, the biological threat, and we have wasted enormous sums of money. I agree with certain things that have been said today, and I also disagree with others, and that's what I want to point out. Now, I like Milt. He's a great guy. We disagree on some stuff. Let me tell you what I agree with. Mother Nature is the worst bioterrorist the human race has ever faced or will probably ever face in the future. You look at pandemic flu. You look at it's extraordinary, the diseases we haven't even seen yet that may come out of uh, tropical rainforests that we're destroying. I worry greatly about those. The good news about spending money correctly on bioterrorism defense is the fact that being better prepared for natural outbreaks also makes us better prepared to respond to bioterrorism. Rapid recognition, response, and recovery are those three policy things that we have to properly focus our spending. I agree with Milt that states are not likely going to be providing bioweapons to terrorist organizations. And I agree that I don't spend much time worrying about bioweapons programs in nation states, uh, mainly for the same reason that we got out of the offensive business in 1969. It's not a very effective or proper weapon for a nation state to have, but a wonderful weapon for a terrorist organization. Uh, let me give you a quote that's in my handout that hopefully some of you received. I saw they were out up there earlier. And I quoted Mr. Leitenberg. He talks about uh, bioterrorism is low probability, high impact. I actually modify that a bit. I think the terminology that the Gilmore Commission report used in their first report that came out before 9-11 Slight difference, but I think important. Lower probability, higher impact. Yeah, it's a lower probability than truck bombs, but the impact is certainly higher as opposed to low and high. Uh, in his statement that I quoted here in the handout, it says, uh, it does not mean that any agent formulation under any circumstances. Rather, it presumes the release of a very high-quality product. I could not agree more with that. You just can't go out and there's types of anthrax out there. I wouldn't mind somebody having it. It's not dangerous. There are certain pathogens that are far more dangerous than others. They have to select the right pathogen, and they have to make it in the proper form. That's what's changed since Milt was working in laboratories back in the 1960s, the biotechnical revolution, which has many wonderful aspects for us now. It makes us all live longer, better lives, our kids and our grandkids. There's a very dark side. And what you can make with equipment you can buy at labx.com is frightening. If the FBI is correct about Amerifax, which I don't necessarily agree with. If they're correct, one guy did it with equipment that you can buy. I used to say with equipment you can buy with what you have in your 401K account. That's probably not true anymore. But for what some people pay on luxury automobiles, you can now go to LabX.com and buy all the equipment that the FBI said Bruce Ivins used to make that anthrax. This is the sort of stuff that was produced in a government program that Mill's very familiar with. It's what a biological weapon looks like. This is weaponized bacillus, anthra uh, bacillus gobegii. This won't harm you. But this is what you can do that took superpower technology in the 60s that graduate students can do in laboratories and universities and many places around the world today. So, yeah, you have to have the right pathogen. You have to properly prepare it. You have to have something to disseminate it. I'll show you the websites where you can spend $1,000 and provide the proper disseminators. And it has to be ideal conditions. I used to live in Great Falls, Montana. I said, don't worry about biological events here. The average wind was 40 miles an hour. If it's 110 degrees in the desert and a 30-mile-an-hour wind, I'm not worried about a biological attack. New York City subway, metro system in Washington, D.C., 
that's where I do worry about it. So that's where I dis- So I agree with what he says. Those three elements are very critical. You have to have the right pathogen. You have to properly prepare it. It's got to be properly disseminated. Moten uses a lot the example of Aum Shinrikyo. I think it's a, a very bad example for what a terrorist organization can do. And Milt is wrong when he says they never created a lethal pathogen. No, I'm not wrong. Uh, Richard Danzig, former Secretary of the Navy and real expert on bio, recently went to Japan and interviewed several of the key people who worked on the Amshin Shinrikyo program. One of the first times they were ever uh, seriously debriefed. I'm very shocked that our intelligence community never did that, frankly. I can't really talk about all the stuff in that thing, but they did have a version that was, would have been very lethal, but when they went from their sort of very simple R&D program to the mass production program, they screwed up the process. But they did have it, and he says in his hands out they didn't, but, but, but they certainly did. Intel. I have to read you one uh, quote uh, that I really like. This is one of the biggest challenges. I remember Brad Roberts, I don't know if he's here today, but from the Institute for Defense Analysis, he talks about the challenges we've had in trying to determine the nature and the capability of biological warfare programs, whether we're talking about terrorists or nation states. And Brad summed it up well at a conference back before 9-11. He said, we've always missed it one way or the other. We grossly overestimated or we grossly underestimated what nation states had. And he gives a lot of examples of that. That's one of the problems we deal with when Milt says, well, we don't know about any terrorist organization doing anything in this or interested in this. Let me read you this quote, one sentence. As shown by the period, he's talking about UNSCOM inspection in Iraq. As shown by a period of 1985 to 1990, an offensive program can be hidden for quite a number of years, including during the period in which it initiates production. Five years, one of the most intrusive inspection regimes ever when UNSCOM was in Iraq in those times. And finally, after five years, we discovered what an extraordinary program they had and how much it was. That, that quote's from page 12 of Milt's book, by the way. So, you know, I'm not an apologist for the intelligence community. They made many mistakes over the years. But it is a very, very difficult challenge for the intelligence community to find out if a terrorist organization is developing a biological weapon in a room smaller than this. Um, about the intelligence stuff, the, it's very difficult at a conference like this to stand up and talk about, <clears throat> at a totally unclassified level, the threat of biological terrorism. I, I will tell you this. Here's a great project if there's any graduate students out there listening on the web or whatever. Go back and look at Pres- I mean, uh, Senator Obama's statements about national security throughout last summer. Compare those statements on those subjects to the several days after he started getting the presidential daily brief. And see, just compare them. I'm just telling you, compare them. When you get access to all the information, not just what's in open source material, when you have access, it, it does open your eyes about a few of the threats we face. Looking forward to the questions. Uh, before we go to the questions real fast, I want to give uh, John and Milton just two to three minutes Tops don't even need that. To, to respond to any of that. We can't have a full-on debate, but I'm sure they have a couple points they'd like to make. So why don't we go John and then Milton. Okay. Yeah, well, John's going to go. Hello? Oh. Um, yeah, let me just quickly run through some of these, uh, these arguments, uh, some of which I agree with, some I don't. Uh, in, t- in terms of confidence intervals, uh, t- confidence levels, I had them. I said basically three and a half billion, and I'll give you a thousand. I've got the, you know, f- throwing my estimate, my, assume my S is off by a full factor of a thousand. It's already in there. 
Um, the uh, nations do keep very careful watch over their um, uh, their, their materials. Uh, and in the case of the Con Network and so forth, what they were doing is aiding nations. They weren't aiding terrorists. Uh, the difference between aiding terrorists is you can't control what they're going to do with it, and they might end up using it on you, uh, whereas nations would presumably be using it mainly for deterrence. Uh, the 9-11 comparison is not, you know, the 9-11 thing was very simple by comparison. All you have to do is get 19 guys who are willing to die and follow rules and uh, adopt basically stuff which is basically thuggish. Um, and, um, uh, and you need a couple of people who know how to fly airplanes. That's it. Uh, and they're working within a system in which the standard thing was that if someone tries to hijack your airliner, you then cooperate with them. In fact, just a few months earlier, there had been a hijacking of that sort of a Russian airliner by a Chechen airliner, a Chechen terrorist, and they'd be brought down to Saudi Arabia and so forth. Um, it, it's not the case that it's strange that people uh, go to flight simulators and, and don't ask to take off and land. Their people pay 500 bucks an hour because they love to joyride. It's a standard thing, according to an FBI guy uh, told me. They don't Taking off and landing is boring. Um, so it's, it's a very uh, standard thing. I do very much agree that locking down or inventorying fissile material is very important so that you know if something is missing, because if it's missing, then that sets into the whole uh, international surveillance and policing system, which I think is a really great idea. Um, and, uh, and again, on the question of low probability, high impact, uh, the, the, the question remains, there's some things that the high impact is unbelievably horrible, like the British killing uh, 20 million Americans, uh, and we discount it, so it must be that the probability is not merely low, but it's incredibly low. You get, at some point, probabilities become so low that you stop worrying about things, even when they're likely to be catastrophes. Okay. Nope. I want to address only two points. Uh, the unscum example, I think the way uh, Randy phrased it, was very, very misleading. Unscum between 91 and 95 was not looking for an existing program that was producing biological weapons in Iraq. There was no such program. It had been done away with before we got in and before uh, unscum got in. They were looking for documentary evidence and interview evidence that such a program had existed. So it wasn't that they were not able to find something which was there functioning and producing. That's a, a very different story. Now, the Danzig story is important. Uh, Dr. Danzig and I know each other for many, many years. We've talked about this on the telephone. I have spent more than six months, well more than six months now, because he made these presentations the first time around April, trying to corroborate his story uh, six different ways. I have people, two academic colleagues in Japan, who had access to Endo, who was the head of the Japanese program, and supposedly did these experiments that he refers to. Um, they had access to him in the past in prison, and they have his memoirs. There's nothing in his memoirs that refers to any of the things that Endo's colleagues have told Danzig. Danzig did not speak to Endo. Endo Danzig also didn't go speak to these two Japanese, though I'd given him their names years ago. Uh, I spoke to the Japanese professor who worked with Dr. Paul Keim in Arizona, who analyzed the Japanese material. We have gone through the literature to look for the papers that uh, Danzig says show that these experiments were done when Danzig, when Endo was a student 
and by which he learned about them. We can't find that. Anyway, I've gone six different ways over eight months. It doesn't mean Danzig is wrong. All I can tell you is that a lot of effort's been gone into trying to corroborate that, and I'm not able to corroborate it. Uh, so at the moment, I don't believe that Endo did. These are, I don't know how many people here are microbiologists or molecular geneticists. These were recombinant experiments to take two different plasmids from two vaccine strains and put them together to reconstitute the pathogenic anthrax. I don't believe Endo did it. Until I can corroborate it, that's where I am. Okay, thanks. Uh, we, we can't have responses to the responses, but if you guys want to use your, uh, your answers in the Q&A to work it in, go for it. Uh, I'm gonna, the first question comes from uh, the room outside, and it's for John, but I'm going to open it up to everybody. Uh, and it says, uh, please reconcile the gap between low probability, high consequence as it relates to a terrorist sponsor nuclear event and the government's inherent responsibility to prepare for such events and protect its citizens' national security, freedoms, etc. I'm going to rephrase this a little bit and say, look, the country wants these defenses. Now, you can sit up here and be platonic guardians and say that we are overestimating them, but uh, this is what the democracy demands. People might get risk wrong. Uh, Paul Slovak will talk about that tomorrow. But nonetheless, uh, they are ultimately the rulers. Uh, so what is the government to do if, after repeated attempts to maybe educate the public about the size of the risk, they fail? Uh, do you just uh, overreact uh, because that's what the democracy demands? I mean, is the question about risk communication or about spending money to prevent this from happening? I'm saying, uh, what do you do as, as a president or as a senator if uh, the, the uh, response that the public demands is something you deem to be an overreaction? Do you just do what the public yeah. says? Do you try to educate them or do you give up? But, yeah, it's a tricky thing. That's the whole risk communication thing which we're dealing with tomorrow. And I've, I thought about it a lot. And the risk communication literature, which Paul Slovic is an expert on, will be talking about at lunch tomorrow. Uh, it's a very tricky thing, but uh, actually partly in contradistinction to some of the things that were said early in, in the first panel this morning, maybe it's the second one, uh, it does seem to be that a reasonable reaction is not necessarily uh, a disaster politically. For example, when Ronald Reagan, there was a lot of outrage when the Americans were uh, killed in Lebanon, and Ronald Reagan sort of mulled around and pulled them out and basically accepted failure, and the results, you know, I looked at some polls, and they said, well, was it a success? No, it was a failure. Uh, but it, it, basically, the public reaction was, is a good try. It didn't work. Uh, similarly, when the when uh, when Carter uh, uh, it, it, and if you deal with and that's one of the that's the biggest terrorist event before 9/11. The second biggest terrorist event before 9/11 was the Lockerbie bombing at the end of 1988, and the reaction to that was get the guys who did it. And then, and then try to get compensation to the victims and stuff like that, their families. Uh, and that was basically accepted. There was no question about going to war with Libya or something like that or bombing anybody. Uh, and it was completely accepted. So we got the, the two biggest terrorist events before 9-11. In both cases, they were dealt with, in one case, by accepting defeat and getting out. Uh, and in the other, by uh, doing police work. Similarly, with the first, the first, I don't see what was wrong with the reaction to the first World Trade Center bombing. Uh, what happened in that case was that the, uh, they went after the guys who did it and got them. Uh, one of those guys is now in jail and is converted to Christianity. So there, I mean, real progress. Uh, um, uh, <clears throat> Uh, so so it's, it's not the case. Whereas overreaction, you know, there's still the jury's still out on this, but the overreaction is Clinton's bombing of Afghanistan and particularly Sudan, particularly Afghanistan, actually, uh, after, the, after the embassy bombings in 1998. Uh, there's a good chance that had he not bombed Afghanistan, the Saudis would have been able to get bin Laden extradited back to Saudi Arabia, which would be the last country he'd ever see for the rest of his life. 
um, and uh, and they've been trying that for years and been working on the Taliban and had a promise that they could do that. Now, whether that would have all worked out, I don't know. Uh, but it would that had a chance of getting bin Laden, whereas obviously bombing did not, and it basically made him into a world hero. Anyone else? Um, I'll take a stab at it. I think this is in some ways a false dichotomy. I certainly don't endorse uh, that a leaders should uh, embrace the fear of their uh, of the people and overreact because people are overreacting. We live not only in a democracy but a representative democracy, and we expect elected leaders to show prudence in the decisions they make about national security. And part of that, though, is uh, it's the government's responsibility to do what the marketplace will not do, and the marketplace isn't going to invest in protecting, you know, insurance aside, we can debate insurance, but in the main, we can't expect that the markets are going, or average citizens are going to focus on uh, high consequence, low probability events. And that really is the government's role and responsibility. And the choice is not between overreaction and ignoring the problem, overreaction and underreaction. What I tried to say in my last point was uh, I'm no more favor of the war in Iraq as a response to the threat of nuclear terrorism uh, than, you know, anyone else. What we should have is the right response. We shouldn't have an overreaction. We shouldn't have an underreaction. We should have the appropriate reaction. And the appropriate reaction to the threat of nuclear terrorism is not to ignore it, but to make it a national priority so that we reduce the probability before the terrorists have a better chance of doing it. And that means securing nuclear materials and rethinking the proposition that nuclear weapons are essential for security. So I, I'm in favor of the right response, not an over-response and not an under-response. Randy and then Milton. Um, I, I'm sorry, I missed the, the morning session here at this superb conference, but I was down at the Carnegie Endowment because we released a report this morning that I, I've been an advisor to for about a year, and it's about nuclear security spending. And it's shocking about how we prioritize our money to make this nation secure from nuclear weapons, and I think you should look at it. Just, and I agree, just what Jim just said, we spend a billion dollars a year to prevent terrorists from getting their hands on nuclear materials. That's what we spend every three days in Iraq. Is that the right priority? We have a new administration coming in next week. We have a new Congress. We have to look at priorities where we're spending money. I think everybody on this panel agrees the number one spending priority for nuclear security is to prevent terrorists from getting their hands on nuclear weapons in the first place, not screening 100 percent of cargo that comes into ports and wasting your tax dollars with other things. But this is a – I don't want to plug another think tank, but this is a great report a lot of folks worked on. It. All right. All right. Milton, did you have some? <clears throat> well, if I understood the question correctly – I think it's a ridiculous suggestion that uh, an intelligent government should accept what it sees as a public overreaction to anything. You, there's no reason that government representatives couldn't have provided all the same information I do. Uh, that's mostly where I get it from, but that isn't what they tell the public. Uh, you don't exaggerate. It's never, it's never uh, uh a rewarding or efficient policy response to exaggerate, to falsely hype, to tout something, a threat which isn't there, it's counterproductive because, as I pointed out, it feeds the suggestion to the other side that it's desirable for them. All these things are negative. You, you tell the public exactly what it really is. You educate them as best as possible. And you make a resource allocation on that basis. 20 seconds. 
Yeah, my, my point is not, on, in terms of nuclear terrorism, it's not that we shouldn't do anything about it. My argument is with people who say under current conditions, the chances of one happening is very high. My argument is that under current conditions, the chances of them happening is extremely low. Uh, if, as Randy points out, the measures can make that even less likely, and they're quite cheap, amazingly cheap, uh, that's fine with me. Okay, first question, Bruce, who uh, raised his hand fast. Way back up. Yeah, I got him. So, so it's kind of a universal truism that technology always gets better, it never gets worse. I'm also reminded of an Arthur C. Clarke quote that we generally grossly overestimate uh, our ability to make near advances in technology and grossly underestimate our long-term ability to make advances in technology. Well, we don't have air cars, but we have the Internet. Uh, sort of given that, it's a matter of when, and whether it's 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years, there will be a time when these threats are are real, it is easy. Is there anything we can do now that gives us a really good bang for the buck for that future inevitability? Because if if it's going to be someday, maybe there's research that needs to be done now. I mean, certainly uh, securing nuclear materials is one that's already been invented, already discussed. Is there anything else that we can do now that will give us a good bang for the buck for the eventuality, whenever it might be? Come in yeah, is it in, particularly with ter- nuclear terrorism? Uh, uh, well, Milton can talk about uh, biological. I think most of the stuff that's being done is generally good, and, and locking down, there's been a huge improvement in the security of nuclear weapons, particularly in Russia over the last 20 years, coming on Nunn-Luger and other things. And I think basically continuing that is there. What I'm arguing is it should be done in the context of this thing is very unlikely, though potentially dangerous. And ter- but, however, you know, there's been, uh, biological weapons are not new. Bio- the science of biology is not exactly invented in 1945. Uh, and, and chemical weapons were used with considerable sophistication in World War I. Uh, so it's not that the techniques aren't there, that people can't do that. Uh, it's just that they haven't used them, and that may, that may well be the case with nuclear weapons, particularly when they try to make some effort at seeing how difficult it is to put them together. Uh, let me just jump in and say, you know, uh, plutonium and highly enriched uranium do not exist in nature, and uh, they have to be made. So it's not just about securing what we have. It's about shrinking the amount that we have. So we should stop producing more. We should have a fissile material cutoff treaty, uh, that a lot of countries favor that, so that we're not producing more fissile material. Uh, we should be shrinking the sizes of the nuclear weapons complexes in every state that's a nuclear weapons state. We should be paying attention to A.Q. Khan because while it's true that he was selling primarily to state actors, it seems to me a private broker uh, – I'm, I'm skeptical, as I said. I'm skeptical about the notion that states will sell nuclear materials or weapons to non-state actors. But a non-state broker, a s- private public partnership, if you will, this gray entity, it seems I'm, I'm less confident about that. So attention to those sorts of things. I'm in favor, and this is sort of consistent with what John was saying, uh, making it organizationally difficult for terrorists. Let's swamp the thing with scams and, uh, and entrapment things. So they don't know, so the terrorist doesn't know whether the person they're dealing with is a police officer or an actual uh, seller of material goods. So I think there's a number of different things in law enforcement. But the core issue is no material, no attack. Reduce the material, reduce the threat of attack. Yeah, also no material, no nuclear reactors as well. What you have to do is keep in mind that there's a big benefit from nuclear technology. And in order to get – if you get hysterical about nuclear terrorism, it may mean that you're cutting economic growth. Reactors run on low-enriched uranium, not highly enriched uranium. You can have all the low-enriched uranium in the world. You can't make a nuclear weapon. Milton. Yeah, but you have to be, be able to enrich it. Very short about the technology. I, I pointed out 
that technology and knowledge in molecular genetics have been increasing and spreading worldwide, uh, certainly for 30, 40 years, uh, particularly from the mid-1980s then. That is not what has been the driver of whether anybody does these things or not. That's not, if Mr. Ivins did it, Dr. Ivins, that's not why it was done. Uh, again, Randy's phrasing about what you can purchase online is incredibly misleading. Uh, that laboratory is the premier laboratory in the United States. The containment facilities, the pathogen, you don't buy the pathogen for the $1,000 either. Uh, if you those of you who read the New York Times, if you saw Scott Chain's article uh, last Sunday, uh, he quoted Dr. Moore out at Dugway, Dr. Etzel, who was f formerly a superior of Ivan's. They said, yes, they could do it too. But there are about a dozen, maybe 20 people in the United States in three, four places that can make that material. Not anybody that can buy a particular piece of equipment over uh, the internet, yeah, and obviously I, I, I disagree with that. That uh, a dozen people in the United States can do it. The about the technology question, though, Bruce is pretty fabulous. You know, in June of 1941, the Navy did a study said Pearl Harbor is too shallow for airdrop torpedoes. It was in June 1941. It was three months later the Japanese figured out how to modify the fins, put wood fins on it. And I think it was 38 torpedoes that hit ships. Uh, for those of you who didn't get the handout, at the last page I put the – it's the cover of the Army-Navy game program from 1941. And on page 181 has a beautiful picture of the Arizona slamming through the waves with a bow shot there. And it says, it's significant that despite the claims of air power enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. That was eight days before Pearl Harbor. So I, I worry about this, that the, the fact that the technology has advanced so rapidly. Those of you outside the field of biology, I'm telling you, it's extraordinary. It's now been what, four or five years since they made polio in a test tube up at a university in New York from non-living material from, from viruses. It's extraordinary what's going on, how many DNA factories they are. Um, I, I should give you a handout around the United States. So that's the technology that I'm worrying about, That what, what Bruce mentioned. The, the answer to the nuke security is simple compared to bio. Jim's exactly right. Don't let terrorists get their hands on highly enriched uranium or plutonium, and our families are secure. That's simple. Didn't say it's easy. I said it was simple. Bio, unfortunately, is much more difficult. We're going to do one more question here, and then we'll go to the gentleman in the back. Hello? Okay. Um, I actually really wonder... You're not coming through on the mic. It's not coming through? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I, I actually wonder who's panicking for a uh, nuclear threat. I mean, I don't see the American public panicking in spite of the number of, like, uh, Hollywood movies, you know, predicting the end of the world. I mean, it doesn't seem that the American public is panicking. Have you guys seen any sign that the American public is panicking? Hence, and if, if, there, if it's not, then probably Chertoff's comment and, and all the other, you know, uh, comments that we hear, President Bush also said that you know nuclear threat was uh, the biggest one, and and kept him up at night. I mean, I wonder where they're getting that vibes, maybe from think tanks. But uh, <laughs> and, and if really they are actually worried about it, I mean, you know, Randy said it. I mean, they're really spending no money, and usually in Washington, that's how you measure priorities. And like, if you put all the nuclear threat reduction and non-proliferation spending, the request in 2009 was $1.8 billion. If you 
compare it to how much we, s we spend on um, screeners at airports that will ask me to take off my belt, my sweater, my shoes, everything, of which $7 billion, obviously no one worries about it. How do you explain it? Yeah, the way I'd look at it is it's not panic, but it's a permissive condition. That what happens is, is all you have to do is end up by saying and then we don't want nuclear weapons in the hands of terrorists and you can get almost anything through. That's what Chertoff is saying. He's saying your chances of being killed are very low, like Mueller says. However, what if they get nuclear weapons? Therefore, you should quadruple my, you know, the DHS budget and so forth. So it worked very well politically. I mean, the, the classic example is Condoleezza Rice. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. You say that, and everybody stops thinking. Um, and, and so it, it's very powerful. I, I, I don't think there's a panic. I don't think there's a demand for much of anything. I, I can't detect a demand that people be forced to take off their shoes in airports. Uh, but what happens is the concern it creates this permissive environment in which the DHS budget has gone up by a factor of, what, two or three uh, since 2001 uh, and, uh, and without a whole lot of uh, examination, except maybe by you. The fact, the, fact, the fact is, Secretary Chertoff of the Department of Homeland Security plays a very small role in securing this nation from the nuclear threat. It's programs like the Cooperative Threat Reduction, which is currently in DOD and maybe should move to State Department. Uh, that is – so it, it's funny when, you know, Secretary Chertoff, what role do they really play? I mean, you know, they got DNDO that, you know, wants to inspect things in ports. It's a little bit too late when it gets to the port in New York City, okay, or Los Angeles. So Secretary Chertoff – but, but I agree with him. Look, we'll survive a couple Murrah buildings. We'll survive, you know, shooters and shopping malls and stuff like that. It's not going to change the nation. A nuclear weapon in Washington, D.C. will change the nation forever. That's why I see it as one of the top threats. A major anthrax attack on Chicago or Los Angeles will change this nation for a long time. That's why they have to be the top priority. Good question. Jim, you know, I, I tell you, this is the, what I was trying to point to with the paradox, right? There's this... Uh, what's called alarmism, and I feel uncomfortable with some of the statements that are made about the threat. You know, I, I think some of them are overdrawn. But the people who are making those, my colleagues back in Cambridge who are making those, feel very frustrated, right? Uh, uh, John would say, look, uh, these alarmists, they've caused all these things to happen. I can tell you they don't feel like they've uh, achieved their goals. Their goals are to get the material secured, to take the other steps that would minimize this risk. Somehow the danger part of it is out there. But And part of it is – and so I don't know what the magical answer is. But I think we have to locate where the problem is. The problem is not with the American people. They seem to respond to this idea when you survey them or talk to them or they're willing to uh, put this on the public agenda. And I don't think the problem is, is with the people in Cambridge. They may be a little overexcited about characterizing the threats, but I don't think that's the cause of the problem. The real locus of the problem is the use of the threat for other purposes. Right? We're not using the threat and drawing the conclusion, therefore, we should reduce the size of the nuclear weapon stockpile and clean up and reduce this material. We're saying the policymakers are saying, no, we'll use the atomic imagery to justify other policy goals we already had that preexisted. This is a problem. Yeah, like wars in Iraq. Yeah, like wars in Iraq. Absolutely. I, we agree on that. Question back right. Please identify yourself, everybody. Ed Destashier, University of Maryland. seems to me that uh, suicide attacks, uh, the advent and uh, growth of that has changed uh, a lot of people's thinking about uh, things. What, all you mentioned was uh, anthrax, I think. Uh, what do you think of the um, potential for 
using suicide bombers with something like uh, smallpox, for example, in 10 different uh, airliners going to 10 different cities. Is that directed to Milton Lightenberg? Well, I think this is one that Milton and I agree on completely. I, I think that's just the most unlikely scenario. The BBC did a movie about it a couple of years ago. One guy went to New York City and created a pandemic. Just, I mean, that's, that's even beyond Hollywood. Uh, I, I don't know, Milt. I don't know if you disagree. I, that's just not the way you're going to disseminate an effective biological weapon. Go ahead, Milt. Well, I, I don't know what you meant. You said a suicide bomber. Uh, you, you wouldn't disseminate smallpox with a bomb. You would use an aerosol spray. I assume you meant that. No, I think he means someone infected with smallpox walking around in a city. Oh, no, is that what you meant? I see. Yeah. Um, uh, well, <laughs> the, the, basic, the basic part of that is to begin at the beginning, just like HEU, high, high enriched uranium or plutonium. Where do you get the smallpox from? There are only two official repositories in the world, uh, one in the Soviet Union and Vector in Novosibirsk, in Kosovo, and CDC in the United States. Uh, there are probably an institute or two in the so if Russian military that still have the material, too. Uh, but they're all equally well guarded. Uh, in fact, it's the group that Randy works with in, in, uh, now in Pittsburgh that put forward these lunatic scenarios. Uh, at, at, one was called Atlantic Storm and the other one was called Dark Winter. Uh, the, the likelihood of a terrorist group getting smallpox uh, is extremely low. You did pick... The easiest way for them to do something with it, because then they don't have to make a preparation, either wet or dry. One of those scenarios even used dry smallpox, aerosolized. The Soviet Union had several thousand people working for 35 years with smallpox. They never even dreamt or tried to make dry powder smallpox. Uh, we never made wet smallpox in our offensive program, which was 43 to 69. So in theory, one could infect an individual. The question is, where do you get the material? Second, that would be the easiest way to deal with an attack because an individual can infect only a relatively small number of other people. There's a short window of about 12, maybe 14 hours before the person is very significantly visible and also incapacitated, he, he's very ill, uh, and is infected. Before that 12, 14 hours, he's not infective. So it's a short period of time. Uh, you would have minimal transmission. We know a lot about smallpox traditional uh, infection rates historically, it's not simply you walk through a mall. That's not the way it works. You have to be in close contact for multiple hours with your family members or your co-workers so that you get the infection. And this is terribly important because the exercises all falsify this nonsense. <clears throat> in other words, you would have a small number of people propagating to a small other population, and that can be dealt with just the way when I was young, 
I was born in 1933, so I got vaccinated when there was the last smallpox outbreak in New York. And that's still dealt with in the traditional ways by isolating the population and, and vaccinating everybody around. If you make preposterous scenarios that thousands of people are infected all at once and within hours infect thousands of others, you can't deal with anything. But that's why the fake scenarios are made, to show that you can't deal with anything. In the example you gave, it could be dealt with relatively easily. Um, gentleman right here in the front. <coughs> I don't get to respond to the lunatic charge? Okay. <laughs> Except Milton never interviewed anybody involved in those exercises, and we specifically <coughs> fewer people died in Dark Winter than and then died at Pearl Harbor. And Dr. D. A. Henderson was our real expert, the guy that led the the effort to eradicate smallpox. But I won't respond to the other lunatic part. Go ahead, <laughs> Mohammed Kassim. Dr. Muller, um, we've heard that there's only one terrorist group that is seriously dangerous to the United States. That's Al Qaeda. It's now down to a couple of hundred. Yeah. Why do we have this discussion? <laughs> That's a very good question. Thousands of people chasing Al Qaeda. Yeah, these these are sagements numbers. <laughs> they locked them up in Iraq and Afghanistan, but uh, you know, what, nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, Al, Al Qaeda is the only one. Yeah, I mean, it's a standard thing. Uh, Al Qaeda is the only one who wants to attack the United States, yeah. uh, according to Sagement, according to Fawaz Jerjes. It's a, a few hundred or something running around in 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 Afghanistan. Uh, and then there's the leaderless jihad. These guys are potentially dangerous, and these guys could get connect eventually on the on the internet and do something bad, uh, blow up a shopping mall or something like that. I would that. have thought, Doctor Lightberg, that. Uh, but it's not an existential threat to the United States. Uh, <laughs> Chertoff actually has called Al Qaeda a significant existential threat to the United States, differentiating carefully from all those insignificant existential <laughs> threats we, we've had in the past. And isn't and, and it just seems that that's preposterous. I mean, not that these guys couldn't do bad things. And isn't the biological weapon that we were already hurt, uh, uh, being hit by is the drug? I can't treatment. hear you. Yeah, you talk directly. Uh, the biological problem we have right now, bio-warfare, bio isn't it the drug problem that's already... Isn't it a what? Isn't it the drug problem that's already existing? Drug problem? Yeah. Down the street, I, they're I selling drugs. I don't understand you. <laughs> I'd like to respond to the issue about al-Qaeda. I try to be clear that I was underwhelmed by al-Qaeda's technological capability. And that my concern is not al-Qaeda. You know, what is the t uh, timeline of al-Qaeda, the lifespan of al-Qaeda? You know, is it going to be 25 years? Is it going to be 10 years, 5 years? I don't know. You know, pick a number, pick a high number. Whatever number you pick for al-Qaeda, I guarantee uh, that we'll be dealing with the problem of fissile material beyond the life of al-Qaeda. And if we were talking in the 1970s, as I said, our profile, our imagination would be limited by our concept of a terrorist as an ideological-driven terrorist along the lines of Badr-Meinhof and the Red Army and all the rest. And we would have not at all thought about or conceived of the possibility that there would be some other sort of group with a different type of grievance, with a different profile, with a different set of technical characteristics. So I don't worry about al-Qaeda, but I worry about, as I said, some you know, 4.0 where uh, people have more skills, where there's more material uh, around because we've gone to uh, a, a, because of climate change we've gone to an economy where there's lots of nuclear material uh, and some countries have gone for breeders rather than staying with low enriched uranium uh, all I'm saying is I, I just don't have the confidence that John has to say this is absolutely not a problem and I don't have the confidence to say with my colleagues in Cambridge this is a near certainty what I'm saying is for rather modest investments and for things that we ought to be doing anyway we should treat it seriously 
So we're getting worst-case scenarios about an imaginary enemy. I, 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 don't, I don't worry about a terrorist in a cave in Afghanistan making a biological weapon. But in the future, I do worry about a biologist becoming a terrorist. We've we, we got to wrap up before the debate breaks out too much here, but I want to take <laughs> two final questions. I want to take them both together, and then we'll have very rapid responses from the panelists, and we will finish up. So the gentleman here and then the gentleman right below him here. We'll take the questions to get one and then the other. Hi, Woody Kaplan is my name. Um, I didn't get scared. I just got depressed when <laughs> Larson said, um, pointed out that um, President-elect Obama has changed his attitude since he's been briefed by the successors of George Tenet. And, um, Read the statements. Uh, I just think that it's very sad if we're going to start running our policy on the basis of the very strange WMD or whatever other information George Tenet's successor is giving to our president. There's got to be a different way of handling this. Okay. Uh, sir. Uh, very quick question. Al Maroney, uh, I have a question about the threat that we've ignored, the chemical terrorism. I agree that the WMD definition is, is lousy, but last I saw, chemical was still part of the definition that the U.N. set, and it's uh, the only terrorism effect that we've had that actually did cause mass casualties. Well, why do we have so many uh, respected leaders out there and analysts and think tanks that want to disregard the threat of chemical terrorism in response to much less likely scenarios of biological... You said that there was a mass attack on chemical... I'm Shinrikyo. Yeah, yeah, they killed 10 people. That's a mass? No, and it injured about less than 1,000, hospitalized up to 1,000 people. Yeah, you start smelling funny things, you go to the hospital and you're injured. No, 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 sir. 4,000 people were worried well. 1,000 people that included, that got at least ocular vision effects and uh, sore throats and whatnot. But in any event, it's, it's the only mass casualty attack, and at least it did happen. Anybody want to take that one, and this is it? Milton's our chemical guy. Well, yeah. I, you know, I think it's a fair question. Um, uh, oh, did I interrupt you, John? Were you talking? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I think it's a fair question. I'm not a chemical guy, but I, uh, on the, along the same lines, I worry somewhat about radiological attacks, which we can't prevent, but that we're in no position to manage. You know, if we don't manage them well. Uh, there are ways to minimize the fear, to respond appropriately, to reassure people. I don't think we have the things in place to do that. Uh, so I think uh, it may be, and I don't know chemical, but at least in radiological, this falls into the more probable, less consequential, but nevertheless potentially politically consequential, and therefore it behooves us to uh, have an appropriate strategy for managing them. I don't think we can't lock up all the radiological material. We're swimming in radiological material. You know, it's used to everything. Uh, but uh, that's a that's really a terror thing that, to to make people scared rather than to kill them. But we should do more work on managing uh, how we would respond to manage the fears, reduce the fears associated if, in case those sorts of events were to take place. You give two statistics in World War One, or do you want Milton? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, in World War I, the gas accounted uh, for seven-tenths of one percent of the fatalities. On average, in World War I, it took a ton of gas to kill one person. Okay, uh, that is all. Uh, I am to remind people to keep their name tags for tomorrow if you're coming back, and I assume everyone will come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. sharp, if not earlier, for the panel which I'm chairing in the morning. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out.